0: Another pot of coffee is brewing and I am currently enjoying my third cup because it's the weekend and I'm feeling just a little bit tired. Guess that's totally my fault though, because I was up until the wee hours reading. What's new there? The perils of being addicted to books, as all you bibliophiles out there will already know. Right now, I am enjoying the fact that it is beautifully peaceful and all I can hear is the chirping of small birds in the trees outside my flat that are also relishing the warm spell we're experiencing. I love that slow languid move from spring to summer, even in the UK. The promise of warm days ahead really helps with the SAD. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Being Bookish, I'm your host, Ray, self confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles. Right now, citronella is probably the best bet. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference, of course. And let's get started. This week, I will admit, is a bit of an odd one, as I started out with every single intention of reading and reviewing one particular book. And for some reason, which I really don't get at all, I was three days into the reading, yes, three days, which in itself is unusual for me, and I hadn't made it further than page 90. So at the literal last minute, meaning yesterday morning, I decided it was time to pick up something else and review that instead. And that's why I very quickly purchased Electra by Jennifer Saint. Give me a mythology over a no-show episode any day of the week. The house of Atreus is cursed, a bloodline tainted by a generational cycle of violence and vengeance. This is the story of three women, their fates inextricably tied to this curse and the fickle nature of men and gods. Clytemnestra, the sister of Helen, wife of Agamemnon, her hopes of averting the curse are dashed when her sister is taken to Troy by the feckless Paris. Her husband raises a great army against them and determines to win, whatever the cost. Cassandra, princess of Troy and cursed by Apollo to see the future, but never to be believed when she speaks of it. She is powerless in her knowledge that the city will fall. Electra, the youngest daughter of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon. Electra is horrified by the bloodletting of her kin, but can she escape the curse, or is her own destiny also bound by violence? All the way back in July of last year, I reviewed Jennifer Saint's first mythologically focused novel, Ariadne. And though this genre really does remain one of my favourites, the book was not what I had expected or hoped. I gave it two stars on Goodreads and though that does feel a little bit mean and against character, I'm going to stick by that because of issues I personally had with the story. That being said, I know that a lot of people loved it. So I will post the link to my review below and let you make your own minds up. For anyone who isn't quite sure who Electra is, and no, we're not talking the Psy-wielding assassin from Marvel, she is the youngest child of King Agamemnon of Mycenae and his wife Clytemnestra. Need a bit more? Clytemnestra was the sister of Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. So this book is based before, during and after the sacking of Troy, Troy is, honestly, where my love of all things Greek mythology started. When I was nine years old, we did a play in primary school called Troy. I was given the role, quite suitable now that I think about it, of Cassandra, the fortune teller and daughter of King Priam and Queen Hecuba of Troy. In this play, I had to act crazy. And say insane things about how my newly returned brother Paris, played by James Tedeschi, who I later had to kiss in The Sound of Music, and knew that he was going to cause the destruction of the town. Pretty blonde Jodie Oliver played the beautiful Helen, and we did indeed see destruction. If you've ever seen a primary school play, you'll know exactly what I mean. It was chaos. Chaos. This book delves into the emotions of the women who are victims of the war, and at one particular point highlights that while Helen indeed makes her husband Menelaus a cuckold, she was only an excuse for them to destroy a powerful city that could have been competition for their own heritage in Mycenae. As a child, I didn't really delve into the so-called behind-the-scenes information – but this book really digs deep, looking at the horrific history behind the myth, especially where the two brothers, Agamemnon and Menelaus, are concerned. And it is indeed barbaric. As always, we have stories of incestuous and abusive relationships, but we also have fratricide, patricide and cannibalism. Yes, we run the full gamut here. Though the tale is titled Electra, part of me thinks this is a little bit of an identity crisis. Do we get Electra's tale woven into the book? Yes, we definitely do. Is she the central character? Being honest, as I read this, all I could think was that actually this is more the story of Clytemnestra, her descent into the pits of despair and everything that aided in that journey. I'm going to take a guess here and say that many of you have seen the 2004 film Troy starring Brad Pitt and Orlando Bloom. That told the tale of the battle and did not focus so much on the aftermath or the actions that truly led up to it. In fact, the people who suffered the most in this are not even in the cast. Here I am referring to the people on both sides of the war, those left in Mycenae to await the return of their sons and husbands, and the women in Troy who were witness to the destruction that took place. In this book we were introduced in more detail to the stories of Clytemnestra, the Queen of Mycenae, Agamemnon's wife and Helen's sister, as well as the experiences of Cassandra, a woman cursed by Apollo with the gift of sight, but the curse of never being believed, and of course Electra. See, even here she's an afterthought. As I have already mentioned, this book felt more like it should have been called Clytemnestra, but a part of me wonders if, because she is less well-known and her name sounds a little like an STI, it was felt Electra was more punchy. Anyway, whatever the reason, that is the title of the book, so let's just move on. When I started reading, I was immediately enamoured with the voice of Clytemnestra and, to a degree, the voice of Cassandra. At one point, I was even moved to tears when reading about her disillusion with her new husband. One big thing that this book has in common with the vast majority of Greek and Roman myth is the passage of time means nothing. In this book, ten years pass in mere chapters and there is the assumption that you know it passed. Though it is the story of Electra, it is also the tale of a mother's grief. And to explain that, I am going to go all classics student on you for a few moments. Just know that this isn't book spoilers. It is a retelling of moments that happen before the start of the Trojan War, and most certainly moments that were left out of the film that seem to focus more on Brad Pitt's abs than anything else. I'm not going to go into the heritage of Menelaus and Agamemnon in great detail because it's both completely complicated and quite grotesque, but I will say that they came from a very violent bloodline. And after the wedding of Helen to Menelaus, but prior to Agamemnon and Clytemnestra pledging their troth, the two brothers returned to Mycenae with a warrior army from Sparta to oust their uncle Phaestes from the throne. And here I don't mean, uncle, leave, or we will kill you. I mean, here, uncle, I am going to plunge my sword into you, and you are now dead. In a show of apparent kindness, they let his young son, Aegisus, live, excuse the pronunciation, a point that Agamemnon even brags about in the book to his new wife, claiming he did this for her. However, it's soon obvious that he regrets this decision, but just 15 years after taking the throne of Mycenae and three daughters, Iphigenia, Chrysothemis, and Electra, he is asked by his brother Menelaus to go to war. Now, this is the important bit that truly sets the motives in this book into action. With the armies of Mycenae and Sparta behind them, they are sure they are going to win against Troy. But then disaster strikes and a sacred white deer is slain. Clytemnestra is asked to bring their oldest daughter, Iphigenia, to Auris, where she is to wed Achilles in exchange for his participation in the war. However, it is a ruse. As a horrified and incredibly pregnant Clytemnestra watches, her daughter's throat is slit by her husband, a sacrifice to Artemis. Without explanation or excuse, her husband leaves her there to mourn the senseless death of her child. Reading this moment, explained in Clytemnestra's voice, her horror and pain truly choked me up. And when a book achieves this, I know I'm reading the right thing. A long time later, I would hear the bards sing of my daughter's death, along with all the other stories they told of Troy. Often they would say that at the very moment Agamemnon raised the knife, Artemis took pity on Iphigenia and swapped her for a deer, In this version of the story, my daughter lives on as a priestess and favourite of the goddess on an island somewhere. Crucially, in this telling, Agamemnon did nothing more than slaughter a simple animal. It's poetic and pretty, and so very clean. But I saw her body convulsed in her father's arms as he drew that blade across her throat. I held her warm and bleeding and dead on the beach." This book is adding more life to the characters who, in the tales of Homer, Sophocles and Aeschylus, were footnotes on the tales of the so-called great men who fought wars, killed innocents and invaded countries to win crowns of greatness. The story of Electra is one that, for me at least, felt somewhat glossed over in the book. We get a great deal of detail from Clytemnestra and Cassandra, both are on opposite sides, yet both experiencing similar concerns. Clytemnestra is worried for her family. She is concerned that should her husband suffer another disaster in Troy, she will lose another daughter. She will be forced to witness the sacrifice of another child she has carried and born. She does not want to go through that again, and any mother will be able to identify with that fear. At the moment she saw Iphigenia murdered at the hand of her father, without emotional regret, she started to doubt that he had ever been the man she wanted and believed him to be. Where once, for a moment, he had shown mercy, when it came to the life of a child he had helped create, there was none. Yes, that is the moment in the book where tears welled up. So we have Clytemnestra in Mycenae, angry with her heartless husband, furious with her senseless sister and terrified for her remaining two daughters. What's a woman to do in these circumstances? Meanwhile, in Troy, we have Cassandra, daughter of the king, trying to get her family and people to listen to her, all the while knowing that all they see is an insane woman who never talks sense. The thing that always baffled me about Cassandra was the fact that she would tell them what was about to happen, what was in the visions that she had seen, and even after they had happened, they still treated her as though she was simply mad. Cassandra's story is, for me, in some ways, similar to the tale of Medusa. I have a book about her that I am going to review at some point over the next six months, so we will get to the tales of the Gorgons then. However, the stories feel similar because this ability and curse that she has is all because she dared to say one thing. No. That's right. Cassandra is a young woman who dedicated her life to being a virgin priestess of the sun god Apollo. One day when she was in his temple tending his statue, he appeared to her and gave her the gift of sight, the ability to see visions of the future. Great, right? Of course, who wouldn't want to have this power? Well, I personally wouldn't, but that's because I always see the worst stuff. And who wants to know when they're going to die anyway? But this gift has a price, and it's one that Cassandra is not willing to pay. For to do so will not only change her life, but destroy what she's built for herself. She has always felt like an outcast, and being honest here, in every single version of Cassandra's tale, her mother is an absolute mare to her. And in Electra, that is still the case. Apollo wants Cassandra to sacrifice her virginity for the present he has given her. But she knows that all his priestesses must be pure. And even if she tells her priestess sisters that it was the goddess Apollo she lay with, she would still be thrown out on her ear without a reference. Apollo isn't used to being told no There are swathes of tales about him and his dislike of that particular word and the stunning Apollo and Daphne by Bernini tells of another instance where the woman suffers to distance herself from his advances. So as punishment, he ensures that she still has this gift but curses her, ensuring that no matter what she tells people, it will never be believed. So she is destined to see the paths of destruction that are wending their way to her home. But no matter what she says, they will ignore it and she will have to endure. So here's the thing, and it's why I keep on saying that this book is more the stories of Cassandra and Clytemnestra than anything else. Electra is a baby at the beginning of the book. And any true acts of awareness aren't witnessed until 62% of the way through. She is a child with childish observations. She barely understands what her mother is telling her when her father leaves for war. And she has fed the stories that she wants to hear about his power, his kindness, his strength as a king, from the servants and a young farmhand called Giorgio. I could easily tell you everything that happens in the book, because the myths around the Trojan War are not unknown. But as with all myths, whether they're Greek, Roman, Hindu, Native American, or from the Maori, have different interpretations. And this book is no different. Saint took a specific branch of the myth and ran with it, and did so well. Though I guess I am biased as she does gift certain characters with the ending I prefer, which is always good. This book is brand new as I record this. It was released on the 26th of April in the UK and the 3rd of May in the US, I was not sent a copy of this book in exchange for an honest review, but as you know from me by now, that's what you will get anyway. Though it is new, there are already several reviews on Goodreads, courtesy of people who received an ARC. So far, the book has received 4.08 stars. A Little Haze gave the book two stars, and in a rather long review, said One of the hallmarks of a great book is that you can't bear to put it down. Conversely, finding any excuse to be distracted and leave it for days on end can't be a good thing. Sadly, it was very much the latter for me with Electra. I was so incredibly bored by it all, which is a similar issue I had with the author's first book, Ariadne. However, I did enjoy that more than this. So I was quite willing to, to read Electra to see if this would be a new five-star favorite for me as I absolutely adore all things Greek mythology. But this book, this story, it felt overdone. There was nothing new added to the retelling of these characters' lives, I felt. There are only so many times one can read the same old depictions of Troy unless there is a fresh new angle to explore. Same goes for the Orestia cycle. The novel gives us the story from the point of view of three separate characters, Electra, Clytemnestra, and Cassandra, which to me was a bit disconcerting considering the title of the book is Electra. I would have preferred a more all-encompassing title rather than fixating on one of the leads. Electra honestly baffles me as a character in this retelling. She feels more like a caricature than a living, breathing soul with personality and emotion. Her purpose in the novel feels more akin to a convenient plot device, i.e. to have an opposing view to that of Clytemnestra, instead of a person who genuinely feels the way she does and believes all the things she does. At times, she's like a petulant child throwing her toys out of the pram, or possibly a pantomime villain. There was a point in the story where she was defending the right of her father Agamemnon to claim Briseis as a spoil of war, and I'm there sitting like, really? She devalues other women that much? I know I'm reading from the biased viewpoint of modern times where, hopefully, women are thought of as more than commodities, although there's a strong case to be argued that things are still as archaically patriarchal. But reading these viewpoints seemed illogical because her storyline and character motivations were woefully underdeveloped. Therefore, it just makes for a whole lot of frustrating reading. Cassandra as a character just feels entirely superfluous to events. Her viewpoint is only ever used as pure exposition rather than giving us a character that truly comes alive on the page. Clytemnestra's chapters made her my favourite of the three featured main characters. At least we were given some meatiness to her story and to the complexities of emotion she felt regarding all of her children. But even an engaging depiction of Clytemnestra wasn't enough to save this book for me. It felt tedious to read, and ultimately this was a disappointing one for me, as it never made me feel all the emotions I was hoping for. Polly Florence gave the book four stars and shared, I'm not especially well-versed in Greek mythology, but I do tend to end up loving any reimagining or retelling of these classic stories, and Electra was no exception. The prose is so beautifully atmospheric and very carefully considered, you can feel the passion that Saint has for these characters and the work that's clearly gone into narrating their stories flowing from the page. I especially loved how the complex mother and daughter dynamic and complicated bond was explored through the characters' relationships with one another. Any book that considers this relationship in such a realistic and varied way is one I'm bound to end up loving." I thought that it was expertly done through the multiple POVs and switching between them, and how each one propels and builds the story towards the tragic final act really captivated me. I didn't want to put it down. I would definitely recommend Electra. I can see this book being loved by fans of Greek mythology and people looking for a place to start with the world of reimagined and retold classics. Now that I have established the feelings of a few other readers, I am going to expand on mine just a little bit further. Did I like the book? I have to say that this is a book I enjoyed, but perhaps that's partly because I'm comparing it with the book I was struggling to read right before I picked this one up. Or perhaps because I'm comparing it to the previous book by Saint, which I really didn't enjoy. All of that said, as someone in a previous review mentioned, I feel as though the book was mistitled. Electra was not a character I felt any empathy for. She was self-serving, ignorant, and oblivious to everything but what she considered to be her own pain. She was as much of a tool of her father's disgusting behaviour as he was, and I simply didn't like her. I'm not sure if this was the intention of the author, but I felt as though she was, again, as has been said before, a plot device, superfluous to the story. Her fate was incredibly ambiguous. However, where I think that Saint got things so right was with her interpretations of a mourning mother in Clytemnestra and the frustrated and tormented Cassandra. Both characters inspired empathy in me and this is exactly what I needed to continue reading the book. Will I Read More by Jennifer Saint? This is Jennifer Saint's second novel, her first, was Ariadne, which, as I have already mentioned, didn't impress me much. After reading that, I told myself that it was a first novel and I needed to give her another chance. And this was it. Would I pick up another novel by her? Possibly. However, I do think that the titles need a little bit of reviewing. It's all very well and good to give the books a title that stands out, but it needs to have more than a tenuous connection to the content. Electra was the most unlikable and unrelatable character in the novel, but luckily I didn't discover that until I started to read it. If you're looking for something like this, or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. There are so many options if you're looking for a retelling of the Trojan War, from any perspective – if you're looking for a more female-focused retelling, then you could pick up Daughters of Sparta by Claire Haywood, A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, or The Women of Troy by Pat Barker. If you want something that has a little more detailed retelling of the battlefield, then you could go more academic with Troy by Stephen Fry, or you could go more LGBTQ+, with The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. I will never stop recommending her books. If you just want to delve deeper into Greek mythology and read some wonderful stories, then there is always the classic and original Iliad by Homer. Or switch the perspective with the more modern The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. If you've had your fill of Troy, then what about Circe by Madeline Miller or The Odyssey, which is the, the classic version, if you will, This week was a bit of an odd one as far as everything was concerned, starting as it did with a bank holiday. To me, a bank holiday means one thing, while to others it means something else entirely. For me, it's all about how many books can I legitimately fit into a brief moment in time. To answer that question, I have to say that this week it was one, but it was lovely to slowly read and appreciate the one I selected. A reread in this instance, but one I have always enjoyed. Tuesday brought with it a pleasant surprise. I was all ready to take a completely different book to the office to read during the bus ride and during my lunch break. But then I opened my Kindle and discovered that the last book in a series, a book I had been waiting on for two years, had been delivered. So there was Tuesday sorted. Wednesday was a problem. Last weekend I ordered a couple of new books, one is part of a read-along I'm participating in and the other was brand new to me and I was intrigued by the concept, the blurb and the title. I started this new book and by Saturday was still not far enough along to make it the book for this episode so back on the shelf it has now gone to be picked up at a later date. I have to be honest and say that I am actually really happy with the variety of reading I have done this month so far. We are currently eight days in as I record this, and I have completed four books, all of which have been different. There has been a spy thriller that I'm going to be talking about next week with a really special guest, a contemporary romance, a steamy romance, and the feminist mythology retelling that is Electra. I think that I am probably going to have to up my Goodreads challenge and my personal new author challenge because this year is the year of books and I am absolutely 100% loving every single minute of it. I'm currently putting together the final plans for the live stream hour I am doing as part of the amazing live stream for The Cure on the 19th of May. You may have seen posts about it all over Twitter and Facebook, and if you haven't, what are you doing? And I am doing something that many of you will feel is out of character. I'm going to be reading Badly Written Smut for an hour. So if you have any suggestions before the 18th of May that fit this criteria at all, DM me or send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com. I really need to update that at some point and I am really looking forward to hearing any suggestions. Despite always having a rather large TBR that is constantly growing, just last week I purchased eight books. Yes, don't judge. I am always looking to add to it. So if you have any fiction recommendations you would love to hear me talk about, or just think I'd like to read, send me an email or DM me on Twitter or Instagram, and I will be sure to check them out. We're now more than a week into May, and seriously, I am still not sure what happened to the last four months. It's been a busy few weeks, as far as new releases are concerned, that's for sure. So here are just a few of the books that are coming out on the 12th of May. If you liked Bridgerton, or you have your eye on the latest Regency romance, then you should probably take a look at Sophie Irwin's latest offering, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting, in which a young ingenue attempts to land herself a moneyed husband to save her family from the threat of poverty. Travel with me to 1518 and Strasbourg. An unusual plague has beset the city, and has repercussions for a group of young women in The Dance Tree, by Kyron Millwood Hargrave. Do you like your fantasy full of romance? If so, then the latest collaboration between YA authors Catherine Weber and Catherine Doyle could be ideal for you. Twin Crowns is the story of two young princesses who are separated at birth, and what happens when their worlds collide as they grow into young adulthood. What happens when four women dissatisfied with their lives come together to establish a pottery class? In the first novel by DJ Sarah Cox, Throne, you may find out. In the run-up to summer, publishing lists are getting even longer. This is just a small selection of the books that are being released over the next week. If you'd like to find out more about books coming out or just want to read more spoiler-free reviews, join the other bibliophiles and sign up for my newsletter by visiting my website, beingbookish.co.uk. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? This week is a very important one for mental health in the UK – Not that any other week isn't important, of course, but it's National Mental Health Week. That means that online and across the country, companies and individuals are showing their support for people experiencing mental health issues. Of course, this should be the case every single week, because it can be a struggle and one that unfortunately many aren't able to cope with. But awareness is always important. I know that help can be hard to come by. I have never forgotten the first time my GP recommended I seek help. At the time, it was grief counselling because I was 14 and still struggling with the loss of my dad, who had died three years previously. I was also feeling isolated and unable to talk to my mum. Okay, I was angry about a lot of things that I won't go into right now, but needless to say, they involved a destructive relationship with her. So imagine my absolute joy when the first visit I have to this grief counsellor It's revealed that they are also speaking with my mum. Way to encourage trust in a troubled teen. I wasn't able to talk to this person because I constantly worried that they were going to confide in my mum because I was a minor. Now I know that they would only speak with her should there be a serious issue, but as a child I didn't process the logic. Fast forward over 15 years and I was sitting in a doctor's surgery. I was struggling to sleep, my brain was a mess and I couldn't function. Much of this had been caused by incessant bullying, but the effects of other issues were an underlying cause. By this point in the proceedings, my GP, who was absolute rubbish by the way, had thrown multiple medications my way and though the one I was taking wasn't the best and the side effects sort of sucked, I was taking something and it wasn't Prozac. So what did this new locum GP tell me? That yes, they could put me on the waiting list for help, but it would be at least six months. Thank goodness for private healthcare at that point. See, this is what people contend with. Mental health and having support when problems arise are important, but the facilities to ensure that this is actually the case just don't exist. During the pandemic, there was a 25% increase in the number of people who sought support for depression and anxiety. Unsurprisingly, however, the people who were already suffering and aware of the blockades that exist when seeking help did not speak with their GPs via phone or video call because they already knew the reality of things, that while this help exists, accessing it is incredibly difficult. How do I know this? Because I was one of them. Due to my anaemia, I have regular appointments with a nurse. Yes, even during the pandemic, because I can't self-administer a B12 injection, however much it might be more convenient if I were able to do so. One of the things that she did during this appointment was check on my mental and physical well-being. And I happened to mention that certain things were affecting my mental health that I was concerned about, because I know the warning signs after all these years. Many people don't. Despite already being in the system and having a long mental health history, the waiting list was already eight months. So while I agree that awareness is really important and that this week in the UK and the whole month of May in the US is vital to raise the profile and importance of caring for mental health, I would much rather see an improvement in the facilities and care that are available when you do need help. I have to admit that I am very lucky now. The company I work for has mental health first aiders and acknowledges that it's important to ensure not only the physical but also mental well-being of its employees. But we've all been there working for a company where you're just a number or at a bum on a seat, working all the hours you can so that you can go home and sleep and then start again the next day. Ultimately, take care of yourself and if you need to talk to someone, please reach out. In these virtual world days, a friendly word is never too far away. Well, that's it for this week, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family, and please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify, or Podchaser. And if you're feeling generous, head over to show some support for Livestream for The Cure. This is their sixth. And for 45 hours from the 19th to the 21st of May, it's all live with some of your favourite podcasters, Including me, taking part to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute. You can follow me on Twitter at BeingBookish and on Instagram at BeingBookishPod, or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee and to select a new book from the shelf. So until next time, this is me saying farewell.